in our study of great stories from God's Word. We come today to the Ten Commandments, a call to worship in Exodus chapter 20. By way of introduction today, we're also going to consider Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. So if you want to make your way first to Galatians chapter 3, then we'll return to Exodus chapter 20 as we work our way through these commandments from God. The past 30 years have seen a lot of disagreement in the public arena over the display of religious symbols in government space. This disagreement has sparked strong battles in the courtrooms and also in the court of public opinion. Surprisingly, based on where our nation seems to be going spiritually, three-fourths of Americans still favor the display of the Ten Commandments in government buildings. The Supreme Court ruled on the constitutionality of religious displays in the public first in 1980 in a court case that came out of the state of Kentucky, and they determined that it was unconstitutional. Another court case followed, which confirmed what the first one had said, but then in the years that followed, the rulings have been all over the place. There's been no consistency at all. Some have supported the public display of religious symbols, and others have denied it. I would suggest to you today that that is not our greatest concern. A more significant problem is that many professing believers, if they were asked, could not name the Ten Commandments. And if they could name the Ten Commandments, many would get them out of order. And even a greater problem than this is that people would not understand the significance of the Ten Commandments or the connection between law and gospel and how it all applies to our lives. So, for instance, if we were to pull out small sheets of paper and hand them to you right now and say, you must write down your name at the top of this paper, and then we want you to list without looking at your Bible what those Ten Commandments are in order, how many of you would get them correct? Let's consider the significance of the Ten Commandments given by God and how they apply to us today as we look at this passage of Scripture together, and then by way of introduction, Galatians chapter 3 as well. Leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God was preparing to give the law to his people shortly after the Exodus. He had miraculously delivered them across the Red Sea, and they were beginning to make their way toward the Promised Land. And the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. And when he descended on Mount Sinai, there was fire and there was smoke. The mountain shook and there was thunder and lightning and there were loud trumpet blasts. If the people came too close to the mountain, they would die. They, along with their leader Moses, were in fear of the Lord and rightly so. The Ten Commandments that we'll consider are found here in Exodus 20 and then also in the book of Deuteronomy. The law of God was given specifically to the nation of Israel to reveal the character of God. It showed the holy nature and character of God to his people. It set Israel apart from the other nations because not only did it reveal God to the people, but it prescribed how they were to approach God and then how they were to order their society as the people of God. It was a way of worship for them, pointing forward to the ultimate hope in Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law. 
And he did so completely. He did what no other human being could ever or has ever done, and that is be obedient to the law at every point. Jesus said in the gospel in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 17 and 18, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. The apostle Paul said those who believe in Jesus by faith are released from the obligation of the law. In Galatians, Paul was defending the gospel. And he says in chapter 1 that if anyone were to come to you with a different gospel, as even there were a different gospel, if even an angel from heaven were to come to you and proclaim to you something other than the gospel of Christ, then let him be accursed. What was taking place among the Galatian churches is that there were people who had come out of Judaism and professed faith in Christ, and then they were regressing and they were thinking that they had to obey the law in order to keep their Christianity or to live according to the way that God wanted them to live. Paul brings us to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, and we begin reading, Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed, that's the Messiah, to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. There are three categories of the law in the Old Testament that are important for us to understand and to place into context. The first category is the moral law of God. This would be the law that reveals to us God's holy character, and in the sense that it reveals to us God's holy character, it is timeless and it is eternal. Jesus kept the moral law of God in every way perfectly. And because the moral law reveals God's character to us, it is timeless in the sense that we understand that God is holy and we are unholy. He is right and we are wrong. He is the one who is perfect and we are not. And it shows us when we look at the moral law who God is and how separated we are from God apart from his intervention in Christ. The second category of the law is the ceremonial law, which related to the worship practices of Israel, particularly the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was never intended as a means of salvation. It was pointing forward to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And those ceremonial laws were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
So we're not obligated to observe the ceremonial law because it was completely fulfilled in Christ. The third category is civil law. The civil law of Israel governed their nation as a society. It ordered what they did. It kept them functioning in the way that they should as a law-abiding society and as a society that was honoring to, to God. We are not bound by the civil codes of the Old Testament as New Testament believers because they too have been fulfilled. Now, I share this with you because you'll sometimes get in conversations with people about the Bible, and people who don't know much about the Bible will often appeal to a ceremonial or to a civil law, and they'll say, you're not keeping that ceremonial or that civil law, therefore you don't believe the Bible. Why are you not doing certain things or practicing certain things that the Bible teaches? It's a partial understanding and a complete misunderstanding of the fact of what Christ has done. And when we see the full breadth of Scripture, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment. And this is why we honor and recognize the moral law, because it tells us something about God and about ourselves, and it helps us in our pursuit of the holiness of God in our lives. The first four commandments here in Exodus 20 focus on a relationship with God. The other six commandments focus on relationships with other people. So we're thinking first in these first four commandments about our vertical relationship with God and how we are to rightly relate to him. And then in the other six, we're thinking about how we are to rightly relate to other people. And the first truth that I want you to see here is that a call to worship is an invitation to know God. And I've referred to this as a call to worship because it brings us into focus on who God is and his holiness and his grandeur and his glory. And a call to worship is an invitation to know God. And I want to say here very plainly at the outset, you cannot get right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments. And the reason that you cannot get right with God by keeping the Ten Commandments is because it is impossible in our sin nature and also in our sin choices. If we tried to rightly keep the law of God, we would find ourselves guilty not only at one point, but at every point. James says in James chapter 2 and verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So even if we break one of the law of God, laws of God, it makes us transgressors of the entirety of the law of God. Furthermore, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 in verse 21 and following, But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed by the law and the prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The law reveals God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. The law shows us our need for salvation. The Ten Commandments point us to God who is our hope and who is our deliverer. We are delivered from God's judgment through faith in Jesus who has paid the penalty for our sins. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1 says, Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Notice, before he commanded, 
he declared. And what he declared is who he is and what he has done. He is the one true living eternal God who brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He had delivered them from bondage. He is the only one who was able to do that. And because of who he is and what he has done, God has every right to direct his people how to live. And God's people have every responsibility an obligation, if you will, to obey God. The first four commandments show us how to know God and to worship him rightly. Commandment number one is found in verse three. Do not have other gods besides me. A very plain statement, very obvious, but also a reminder that from the beginning, God's covenant with Israel was based on worship of him alone. Nothing is to come before God in our lives. If we properly understand who God is, we can overcome the temptation to worship anyone or anything else. In ancient Israel, they were tempted by a multitude of false gods. Besides me is before me or literally to my face. If we understand who God is, that he is supreme and glorious over all, if God is our number one priority in all of life and practice, then it will drive everything else that comes from our lives. It is the one defining truth of who God is and that we are to have nothing before him. There is to be nothing that takes priority over him. Then it's going to direct the remainder of our lives. And it calls on us to continually evaluate where we are spiritually to think through our relationship with God and to see whether or not there are things that are obstacles to rightly honoring God as we should in our lives. Commandment number two, do not make an idol for yourself, verse four says, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth, do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. The commandment prohibits idolatry. It prohibits images that would be worshipped as idols as well. Paul reminds us of the foolishness of trying to make God into our own image in Romans chapter 1. In verse 22 and 23, he says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed animals and the creeping things. Idolatry by definition is anything that diverts worship from the one true living God. The most prominent type of idolatry in the Bible was the worship of images or idols that represented pagan deities. And you might think in this refined Western context that we find ourselves in, that that's something that has gone by the wayside. But if you will travel around the world and you will find yourself in other places in the globe, and even if you will find those people who have been transferred from other places of the globe to our parts of the world, you will find that this type of idolatry is still alive and well. And it is prohibited by the word of God, anything that would be a statue or an icon or an image uh, created uh, to worship. Modern, Modern idols in our society focus on things that are more insidious, the pursuit of pleasure, 
the pursuit of power, the pursuit of position, the pursuit of other people rather than your relationship with God, the pursuit of possessions and just gathering up for yourself stuff that in essence you're worshiping. All of these have self at the core. And they are idols because they replace God as the number one priority and they become by act of devotion in your life And by the things that you care about and prioritize, they become the things that you worship. And God says that we are to avoid this because it is dishonoring to him. Commandment number three is found in verse seven. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. One commentator noted that we can break this commandment through profanity. So it could just be an outright curse word. It could be a blasphemous use of the name of God. We see this certainly in uh, media all the time. We hear it around us at certain workplaces. Uh, It's something that's in the vocabulary of people where they don't give a second thought to the nature of of, uh, God's name. And it's out and out profanity. Uh, Even Christians have kind of become dull to this and we will consume things in our homes through media and into our minds that are continually profaning the name of God and that certainly is dishonoring to him. The commentator said we can also dishonor the name of God and misuse his name with frivolity meaning that we can use the name of God in a superficial way. So OMG as an expression would be one of those ways or saying oh God or oh my God in an exclamatory type of way That's a violation of this commandment. Using the name of God in a flippant or casual type of way is dishonoring to his name. We should take it seriously because God takes his name seriously. And then we can also misuse his name through hypocrisy. By claiming to know God and follow God, but then living in another way that dishonors God by way of your testimony. So if your life doesn't measure up with the words that you profess... In a way, that is dishonoring God's name. That's misusing his name. Jesus taught us and his disciples to pray, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name in the Lord's Prayer. And there are consequences for misusing or taking the name of God in vain. Commandment number four is found here beginning in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Important to note here, is the fact that the Sabbath was established before the law was given. God created the world and spoke it into being in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested and eternally presented the Sabbath to us as a way of living and as a way of honoring him. What was the Sabbath? Well, literally, it was the seventh day of the week in which God commanded them not to do any work Uh, God himself gave the example. The Sabbath principle was established before the law, so it is a timeless principle. 
And it tells us that we are not created to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now understand that this is a difficult concept in this modern age that we live in where it's almost a badge of honor to tell people how busy you are and how much stuff you have to do. And we're all competing with who has the most full calendar. And in some way, we see that as uh, ascribing value to us or saying that we're important because we're needed in all of these places. But God tells us that we are to set aside a time where we power down and we worship him, we honor him. Under the new covenant established by the death of Jesus and his resurrection, the church by tradition worshiped on Sunday, which was the first day of the week, making uh, the resurrection of Jesus an, an emphasis in the worship of the early church. The scripture gives us freedom of when we recognize and honor the Sabbath, but it does not give us freedom to deny the Sabbath principle unless we want to do so to our own detriment. It is saying God is sufficient and God's gift of the Sabbath not only allows us to do this, but it encourages us to do this, to move away from self and to recognize the sufficiency of our great God who has created us and who directs our lives. A call to worship is an invitation to know God. The second truth is that a call to worship is an invitation to treat others with dignity. The commandments that we'll look at here in the remainder of this passage relate to how we relate to other people. Dignity is the quality of being worthy of respect or honor. And as the people of God, we are to see other people as having been created in the image of God. And even in their fallen nature, they still retain dignity because they are made by God and they are souls who need to be reconciled to God through Jesus and the hope of the gospel. And I think this is a clarion call to all of us in this age that we live in because sometimes we get caught up in the rancor and the vitriol of our culture. And as Christians even, we can get to the place where we're continually trying to win an argument. And what I want you to understand is that you might be able to win an argument with logic, but you also might lose the opportunity to impact the soul for eternity. And we need to be people, regardless of how we're treated, or whether or not we see other people as being deserving of dignity, we need to treat them with dignity because that's how God has commanded us to live our lives. The next commandment here, commandment number five, is found in verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Children who are young enough to live with their parents should respect and obey and honor their parents. This commandment also applies to adult children. The commandment is particularly difficult if you have dishonorable parents, and they make it difficult for you to do that. Honoring your parents never means participating in something that is unholy or unhelpful. And in fact, depending on what your circumstance is, if you find yourself in one of those conundrums where you want to honor and obey the scripture, but you have parents who are dishonorable, you may need to seek counsel from someone who can help you if you're in a hurtful situation. This is not commanding you uh, to remain in that circumstance or to participate in something that would dishonor God. What it is simply saying is the family is important and respect for our parents is important. 
the family is the foundation of society. It's the basic building block that God has given us. And the failure of the family explains about 95% of what's wrong with our current culture. Because people don't even have respect for their family unit, it flows over to the rest of their lives. So let me state this another way. Parents, you have the responsibility to be people who are honorable to begin with so that your children find it easy to honor you. But then the flip side of that is you have the responsibility before God to teach your children to respect you because if they respect you and they learn that as a basic element of life, then they'll be able to respect other relationships that they have as well. And it's going to flow over. And you're doing none of us a favor if you permit your children to live in a disrespectful way to you and you don't do anything to teach them differently. That is a God-given responsibility to you. It's not cute. It's not funny. There are children who need to be lined out and taught what basic respect is. And in doing so, you're going to be giving them a gift for the rest of their life. And you're going to be giving a gift to the world because they understand this principle. And we are to honor our parents as we honor God. Commandment number six is verse 13. Do not murder. Now, this is the one that people always say in a a gospel encounter when you're trying to share with them how they can know Christ and they begin to tell you how good they are. One of the first things they'll say to you is, well, I've never killed anybody or anything like that. I'm gonna tell you, I've heard that. I don't know how many times I've heard that through the years. And I want to say to them, well, congratulations, you deserve an award. We should get you a certificate and put your name on it that you have never killed anybody. But ultimately, that's not the point. Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, extends this commandment to include not only physical murder, but also anger. And we are all guilty of violating it in that regard. This commandment does not prohibit capital punishment by the government that was established in Genesis chapter 9. Now, I do want to be clear at this point. I believe that there are many problems in the way that our capital punishment is administrated in this country. It is often unjust and uneven, and the time frames that go by and the way that it's applied is often something that I'm not comfortable with. But even so, this does not prohibit that from taking place by the government. Also, this does not prohibit deadly force by law enforcement who are protecting the innocent lives of others. This does not prohibit self-defense where your life would be in danger. This does not prohibit a just war theory where a government would be going against an enemy in order to protect innocent lives. And really, innocent lives is the key to this because that's what murder is. It is the taking of of a life that is not deserving of that life being taken. Now, I'm going to go a step further here because this applies in our culture as well. The commandment relates to the protection of innocent life, including babies in the womb. And I want to be absolutely clear on this, that even if you're one of those people that gives the line, I am not personally in favor of abortion, I would never condone an abortion, but I think other people should have the ability to do what they want to do. And if you are supporting of that legislatively or practically or societally, you are in violation of this commandment. And it says plainly, do not murder. And that's what God's word means. Now, commandment number seven is found in verse 14. 
And it says, do not commit adultery. Adultery, by definition, is a sexual relationship between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. God commanded that a sexual relationship is to be confined to a man and a woman who are united in marriage. This is not a popular concept where sexual immorality runs rampant even in churches. But the Bible says any sexual activity outside of a man and a woman who are in the bonds of marriage is sin. And it doesn't matter how lax the church has gotten on it. It doesn't matter how easy it seems. It doesn't matter how watered down the idea has gotten in the culture. God's standard remains. And if we want to honor God, we're going to follow his way of living. And his way of living is that we are to keep that sexual relationship within marriage and we are not to dishonor or disobey those covenant commandments that we have undertaken as the people of God. Now, as with murder, Jesus pointed to the thought life when he said that to lust after a woman is to commit adultery with her in your heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. Admittedly, mental lust does not rise to the harmful level of physical adultery, but it is sin all the same. And I would go a step further here and say that in our society, pornography is epidemic. Some studies say that 68% of men who attend evangelical churches either look at pornography on an ongoing basis or do so periodically. So let me give you an idea of what this is like. If we were to just pull out randomly 10 men from this congregation, if we are like other evangelical congregations, and we were to line them up here across the front, and the Holy Spirit could tell us who was involved in this and who was not, there would only be three of them that would be standing that had not violated this very commandment by their participation in unholy activity. See, God takes seriously these matters. And we've become like the frog in the kettle where we are progressively drawn into stuff as a culture and overtaken by our enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's God who wants to give you life and life abundantly. So he gives us these things so that we will know how to honor him and how to live in a way that that magnifies his name. Commandment number eight is in verse 15. Do not steal. Theft robbery, extortion, embezzlement, all of it is condemned. The gray area of your taxes is condemned. Any taking of something that does not belong to you is wrong. And the right to personal property is a fundamental element of a free society. And if we disregard that idea, then we disregard what God has said. But as with these other commandments, let me take it one step further. You can also be guilty of stealing from God. So the Bible says, Malachi speaks of it. When we use our financial resources and we're always taking for ourselves and we're always building up stuff for ourselves and we're not rightly giving back to God what belongs to him, that's disobeying this commandment. We're not recognizing the value of what has been entrusted to us to be good stewards of. And it should cause us to evaluate how we use our resources. Commandment number nine is found in verse 16. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. The commandment 
primarily focuses on bearing false witness in a legal setting where damage may occur to another person. But we break this commandment by slander and lies and false impressions and half-truths and silence and questioning other people's motives and more. And Jesus makes it clear that this originates from the heart as well. We're to be a people of truth because God is the God of truth. And then finally, the 10th commandment in verse 17. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You are not to desire to attain what belongs to someone else. Discontentment is the real problem here, and it puts something in front of God, and it puts something as a priority in your life that should not be, and you're not content with what's been entrusted to you, so you're constantly seeking after and coveting what someone else has to your own detriment. A call to worship is a call to know God. A call to worship is an invitation to treat others with dignity. And then finally, a call to worship is an invitation to love deeply. It's an invitation to love deeply. An expert in the law came to Jesus in the New Testament, sent by the Pharisees with a question that was intended to test Jesus or perhaps trip Jesus up in what he was asking. And in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36, he says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now understand that of the 613 Old Testament laws, the rabbis had divided them into the greater and the lesser, but they could not agree on what was the greater or the lesser. Jesus responds to this question by giving two commandments that summarize the law and the prophets. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, Matthew 22 and verse 37 and 38, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Jesus is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Uh, Hear, O Israel. And the heart is central to loving God. The soul is what encompasses all of our highest spiritual devotion, and it is the seat of our being. The mind is the center of the intellectual life, and our strength represents a focused effort of our entire being to honor and to love God. And then verse 39, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus gives a summary statement in verse 40. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. Love God and respect your neighbor, having concern for their well-being. And did you know that the greatest way that you can show concern for the well-being of your neighbor is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. The redemptive hope that we have in Jesus, who is our Savior, to share with them the love that God has superabundantly given in our lives, that he has so graciously shared with us. When we share that love with other people, that's an expression of the fact that we love them not only now, but we love them eternally. And we want them to experience the same love from God that we have experienced. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16 and 17 says, And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Now listen to this. Because as he is, so 
also are we in the world. As Jesus is, so also are we in the world. As Jesus expressed love to the world, so are we to express love to the world. As Jesus lived a life in submission and obedience to the Heavenly Father in this world, so are we to live a life of submission and obedience to our Heavenly Father as we live in this world. That's the context of what it means to love. We love because He has first loved us. And I conclude with this question, this most important, because it brings the entirety of this message into focus. Are we bound by the Ten Commandments? The answer, in part, is no. Absolutely not. Because we are not saved by the law. The law is our guardian. It's our schoolmaster. It's our tutor that shows us our unrighteousness and our need for God's righteousness in salvation. In Christ, we are under grace. Spiritual life is not about what we do for God. It is about what God has done for us in Christ. But then we ask the question once again, are we bound by the Ten Commandments? And the answer, in part, is yes. In terms of our passionate pursuit of God's character in our lives. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All 10 commandments, at least in principle, are reiterated in the New Testament. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to repentance, holiness, and godliness. Insofar as the 10 commandments drive us to repentance, holiness, and godliness, they are invaluable and reflect the eternal character of God to us, and they reveal the eternal character of God to the world through us. Thank God for his word. Thank God for showing himself to us so that we might know what holiness and righteousness is and be able to see our need of Jesus who is the fulfillment of the law perfectly and in every way. And because of his righteousness, by faith, we are declared righteous by God in him, justified because of what Christ has done in his finished work. Let's pray together. Perhaps as you listen to this message, you realize that you don't have a relationship with God in Jesus. And you understand your great need of God's grace. I would invite you in these moments to consider the good news that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again on the third day and that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is there somebody here today who would say, I need to be saved? I'm going to give you the opportunity in a moment as we sing. I'll be here in the front to receive you, pray with you, answer any questions you have from the Scripture, and help you take that step to Christ.
through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But I suspect as followers of Jesus, as many of us are, that a message like this is a deeply convicting message. It's a reminder more and more to cast ourselves on the grace and mercy of God. If there's some area of your life today that is unholy, that you need to repent of, that you need to get right with God about so that the Spirit of God is not quenched or grieved in your life, now would be a good time to say that to God and depend on Him for you, the forgiveness that is freely yours. God, thank You that You have shown Yourself to us through Your Word and by Your Spirit. We are in awe of your great glory. May we live lives that reveal and reflect who you are to a world that needs to know you. Help us to know you more deeply, to treat others with dignity, and to love deeply as you have first loved us. We give this time of response and invitation over to you. If there are decisions that need to be made, steps of faith that need to be taken, I pray that people would come in these closing moments and even after the service is over. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.